Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. We're uh, just about halfway through a 15-week series in the book of Galatians. And one of the challenges I find as a preacher in writing sermons in this series, and one of the challenges that I hope you guys don't experience is listening to sermons in this series, is that Galatians, um, maybe more than any book uh, or any letter that Paul wrote, it only really has one big point. Uh, It's got one focus that Paul is coming back to again and again. It's very, very repetitive, and this makes it challenging, but it's also one of the things that makes Galatians such a powerful book. Because if you, you hear what Paul is saying, he's warning against this particular nasty strain of false teaching that had infected the church in Galatia. And what Paul is trying to help them see, and what I hope we see in this series, is that this nasty strain of false teaching, it's the single greatest threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to our freedom as followers of him. It's hard to give a a one-word definition of what this false teaching was. We've been using the word legalism, um, which is a a pretty good one. You could also call it moralism. This false teaching, you could also just describe it as religion. If you think of religion in all of the worst possible senses of the word, if you did a word association test with religion and kept all the negatives, like here's what you do, here's what you don't do, here's everything that's required of you, that's kind of what came in. The, The sum of the teaching that had infected their church was the belief that when I obey God, God accepts me. And the degree to which I obey God is the degree to which God loves me. And this can take different forms in our life. For some of you, it happens when, you know, you feel like your your relationship with Christ is strong because you haven't committed any overt or scandalous sin for a couple of weeks. And you know, you're like, man, life's going pretty good. But then the minute you you do commit a sin that you know is a sin, then you feel like, gosh, I'm I'm a miserable Christian or I'm not very good at this or surely God is not very pleased with me. Paul says this mindset, it's the greatest threat to the church. It's greater than the secularization of our culture or things that happen in our courts or politics or sexual immorality or anything else. He says all of those things are like, they're like a mosquito bite compared to this false teaching. And Paul, what he does here in Galatians 3 is he gives us a word picture to show us why this 
legalistic, why this man-centered religion, this teaching, why it's so dangerous? Because he shows us how powerful it is. He writes in verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And then he says, Who has bewitched you? And you could actually translate that, Who has put a spell on you? Now, I'm not an expert in magic or wizardry or warlocks. My friend Jonah is really into those things. He's the lead pastor of Sojourn New Albany. So what I know, I've learned from him secondhand. But I love this image because there are a few things that seem to be common with spells, as I understand them. Number one, people uh, who are put under a spell, the spell has immense power to both control and shape their lives in destructive ways. When you're put under a spell, it has tremendous power over you to control your life and and actually destroy your life in many different ways. Number two, spells, they always keep people from thinking clearly and seeing clearly. When you're under a spell, you you see everything kind of through, through a haze or a filter. You don't see clearly. But maybe... Maybe why I love this picture so much is that people who are under a spell, they don't know they're under a spell. Like what makes spells so powerful is when you're under a spell, you never actually know you're under the spell. And what Paul says here is this man-centered performance-based religion it's like a spell that like it's very destructive. It clouds how we think. And we don't even realize it when we're under it. And so a good sign that maybe you've been under the spell before, maybe you're under the spell now, is you think, I've never, ever been under that spell. Like, it it blinds you. And trying to think of how I can wake you up, this spell, to what this spell is and the power it has, this spell is when the good news of the gospel, the good news that I am loved by God fully and finally through the finished work of Jesus Christ, The spell is when that good news becomes old news and it gets overshadowed by the breaking news of what I've done today or this week. It's when the good news becomes old news, it's overshadowed by the breaking news of how I'm doing. Did I read my Bible? Did I pray? Did I serve? Was I kind here? Did I commit this particular sin or that particular sin? What man-centered religion does is it wants to take your focus off of Jesus and his cross, and I want you to turn that focus inward on yourself instead of seeing Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith. Man-centered religion wants you to look at yourself, to fix your eyes on yourself, and see yourself as the author and perfecter of your faith. And I can't help but wonder how many churches, how many Christians, and how often even I fall under this spell where it creeps in and it robs the church of its beauty and its power because you trade the greatest, most beautiful, most powerful, life-changing news in the world that the world will ever know for the most boring, played out, stale, futile list of rules and regulations that do not have the power to bring life and they never bring life. They don't produce joy and they don't produce hope and they don't produce love. And so if I were to ask you, all right, which way do you want to live? Do you want to live 
in the freedom of the gospel, knowing you are loved with boldness and confidence, overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience? Or do you want to live as a slave who's constantly evaluating yourself and wondering, does God love me? You, you know, you're playing the game. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves because it's like, well, I was obedient today, not so obedient yesterday. Which way do you want to live? I don't think anyone's saying, I love it over here. I think everyone says, no, I, I want to live free and with power and with beauty and with boldness. And yet we all find ourselves being captured by the spell. Why? How? How do, we, how do we avoid it? How do we break the spell? And that's what Paul's trying to do here. He uses really strong language in Galatians 3 because he's trying to wake them up. Like, wake up. Do you see what's happened? You're under a spell. And I'll tell you, my prayer in this series is that God would start to wake us up. And one of the most encouraging things that I've had happen as a pastor here in the last few years was this past week, the number of people who came up and said, you know, I'm starting to realize, I never would have considered myself a legalist, but I'm a legalist. I'm starting to realize that my entire life, I viewed my relationship with God as ultimately about me and not about him. I've made Christianity more about me than about Christ. And so my prayer is that as Paul is trying to wake them up, he might wake us up as well. And what he does here is he asks some questions, and these aren't hard or complicated questions. The questions Paul asks in Galatians 3, the answers to them are actually really obvious. But what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to stir them up by way of reminder. He's saying you need to remember some things. If you want to break this spell, and you want to live in freedom. Three things in particular I want to press into that Paul calls them to remember that I, I want us to remember. Number one, to break the spell, you need to remember how your life with God began. Verse two, Paul asked the Galatians a question. Let me ask you only this. And I love it. You can tell Paul's a preacher because he's like, I've only got one question for you. And then he asks seven questions. But he says, let me ask you only this. Here's the big question. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you experience conversion and have the Spirit of God pour into your life by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The question he's asking is, how did your life with God begin? Now remember, Paul planted these churches. He knew these people. He knew their backgrounds and the people in Galatia, they were Gentiles, which means they were non-Jews. They weren't religious people. And judging from a, a list that Paul gives in Galatians 5, these people were engaged in some pretty crazy lifestyles. Like they, they weren't people when Paul calls out their sin, like, you know, typical religious sins of like jealousy or envy or judgmentalism. No, in Galatians 5, Paul's like, hey, you guys, you got to cut it out with the sorcery, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the orgies, all that stuff that needs to go to experience life with God. These people were wild people who did crazy things. They didn't know God, they didn't love God, and they didn't walk with God. And then something happened. The Spirit of God and power came upon them. People who were spiritually dead became alive. They started saying no to sin. They started walking with God. 
They knew the peace of God. They experienced the love of God. And the big question Paul's asking here is how did that happen? What happened and how did it happen? You were spiritually dead and now you're alive. How did you become spiritually alive? How did this work come about? And he gives them two options. Was it by works of the law, number one, or was it by hearing with faith? Was it by works of the law? What did I come and preach to you? Did I come, he's basically saying, did did I come and give you a bunch of laws and say, you know, number one, cut it out with the orgies and the sexual immorality. Number two, uh, you have to stop the drinking. Number three, you have to stop seeing R-rated plays because you know those are bad for you. Number four, ladies, you need to start dressing more modestly, ankle length, togas only from now on. Men, you've got to deal with your anger and we have some anger and conflict resolution. Was that what happened? Did I come and bring you a bunch of rules and you started following them and then the spirit was like, okay, I guess, I guess I'll move in their life? Or did I come and preach to you with the gospel? Verse one, Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's saying, what I came and preached was not a bunch of laws. What I came and preached was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified, murdered on a cross for your sins so that you who are at war with God might experience peace with God. Life with God begins by grace through faith, not by works. Salvation... Salvation is not God recruiting people who show a lot of spiritual potential. Salvation is not God with the clipboard scouting and looking. All right, who's showing a little initiative here? Who's got some hustle? Who could actually help my team out? It's not God doing some form of spiritual recruiting. It is God raising people who are spiritually dead. People who are dead to him, dead to his love, It's God raising them to life. And trying to break the spell of religion, Paul calls the Galatians to remember, how did your life with God begin? And the question that I want to ask you is, how did your life with God begin? We all have different stories. Maybe you can relate to the Galatians and you were living a wild life. Maybe, Maybe your life, you hit a wall or you hit rock bottom. And it was a dramatic conversion story. Maybe it was for you as a long, slow process. Like we all have different stories. But life with God, it always, the one thing they all have in common is they always begin by grace through faith, by hearing and by responding. See, Paul wants to encourage the Galatians. How did God start the thing? You were dead, you heard, you believed, he made you alive. Now, the challenge for us is many of us grew up in what Flannery O'Connor so perfectly called a a Christ-haunted landscape. And what she meant by that is many of us, we grew up with some idea of who Jesus was 
Maybe we went to church every once in a while. Maybe we read the Bible. Most of us, I'm guessing, grew up in a home with a family Bible. Anyone have a family Bible in your house growing up? We had one, and it was a very important thing that we never touched. Like, it's so important and so valuable that it was kept in a box, in a box, and we never actually opened the thing. Now, we... For the most part, we believed in Judeo-Christian virtues and values. The Ten Commandments were seen as a pretty good thing. We believed in heaven and hell, and we knew we weren't Jewish, and we sure weren't Muslim, and so we just had this assumption that we were Christians. What else would we be? Because we believe in God. We believe in heaven and hell. What else could we be? Now, the problem is you're raised in that culture, but that nasty strain has infected that culture, the nasty strain of legalism. And so you're raised, and you know some of the jargon, you've been around church, you know some of the language, but for you, your understanding of Christianity is defined more by what you do than what Jesus has accomplished for you. The message that you received was a message of law, not of gospel. John Stott and his tremendous commentary on the book of Galatians. We have him for sale out in the atrium. He summarizes the difference between law and gospel. And this summary, it's so helpful. He says this, the law says, do this. The gospel says Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us obey, and the gospel brings promises and bids us believe. And I'm guessing for an awful lot of you, if you grew up in the church or you just grew up around the church, your understanding of Christianity is a lot closer to that law than that gospel. Your understanding of Christianity was a lot closer to what you must do, what you must achieve, and how well you obey. It wasn't defined by what Christ has done, by faith, and by just calling us to believe in how good the good news is. And so if that's you, you're in this like weird spot where you're like, I'm for Jesus, but it's also confusing. Because you're like, I'm, I'm not, not a, like, I believe in Jesus. But if you don't understand the gospel, like, you haven't encountered the good part of the good news. And if that's you, I have, I have good news for you. It's hard news, but it's good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ didn't come to this earth and die on a cross and raise from the dead so that you might live in a state of feeling perpetually guilty, worthless, miserable, whatever. Jesus Christ did not from the cross declare, it is finished, and now here are a hundred new rules I want you to follow. Jesus Christ from the cross declared, it is finished. I've done it all. I've paid it all. And the, the thing you need more than anything else is to trust in me. By grace, through faith. It's wonderful news. And when this news gets embedded deep within you, it brings joy and it brings love and it brings 
hope and it brings laugh, laughter and, and life. But that's the good news, but it's hard news because it's really hard, I found. I see this again. It's really hard for people who've spent their entire lives thinking they were Christians to admit that they weren't Christians. It's really hard for people who've spent their entire life under a spell to actually admit, I've been living under a spell. We see this in our church when people get baptized, uh, especially if they, they grew up and have a church background or a Catholic background, and they, they say, you know, I, I kind of knew about God, but I was dead to God, and now I'm alive to God, and like I want to celebrate that through baptism. And then the families kind of get angry. They get mad. Why do they get mad? It's like, we raised you to be Christian. Like, we're a Christian family. You've been a Christian your entire life. Well, let me tell you, that's impossible. According to the Bible, no one can be a Christian their entire life. We come into this world dead to sin, dead in sin. And it requires the Spirit of God to wake us up. So, so no one's born a Christian, and it's one of the, those things when people say, I've always been a Christian, that, that causes me to press in and say, wait a second. You mean you always grew up around church? No, I've always been a Christian. No, <laughs> a Christian is someone who is dead and they're brought to life, but people, they get baptized here and then the families flip out. Wait, no, no, you were, you've always been a Christian. No, I haven't. I know many of you here, you you are afraid to get baptized because you're afraid if I do this, what is my husband or wife? What are my children? What are my parents going to think? If I do this, I'm basically saying, yeah, I was under a spell forever, which it would be so freeing if you did because there are so many of you who are living under the spell, but it's a scary thing. But that's, that's what makes baptism so powerful, right? I mean, the, the uh, initiation ritual of Christianity, it wasn't us putting a ladder on a stage with like an image of God at the top and saying, all right, who wants to be a Christian? Who wants to start climbing? The image is you are dying, like buried with Christ. Baptism is you have died, but you've also been raised to walk in newness of life. That is the gospel. And it's no matter how your story differs from others, the one thing they all have in common is the Spirit brings life. The Spirit makes us alive by grace through faith. And Paul, he's saying, you guys are so wrapped up in the rules, you forgot that this started by grace through faith. To break the curse, remember how your life with God began. Number two, remember how you actually grow in the Christian life. Remember how we actually grow in Christ. Verse 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What Paul's saying here is God saved you by his grace through the power of his Spirit. Now, are you, you leaving the Spirit or trying to add your flesh to the Spirit to become perfect? to grow into holiness, all of a sudden you think you're going to bring something to the table? See, our flesh is the problem in the first place. And in the Bible, your flesh, that's, 
you know, after you become a Christian, it's the old self. Before you become a Christian, it's just who you are. It's the part of you that doesn't love God, doesn't want to honor God. It's the part of you that loves sin, loves yourself, and loves to look out for number one. Now, when you become a Christian, like the Spirit deals a decisive blow against the flesh, but as long as we're on this earth, there's still, like we're all a mixed bag in Christ. There's a civil war of the soul. We have the flesh and we have the Spirit. And what Paul is saying here is we fall under the spell when we think, okay, I came into, I came into Christianity by the Spirit, but I'm going to grow by activating the flesh within me. I'm going to grow. Like, I know God got me this far. I'm going to bring it home. Jesus has done this much for me. I'm finally going to contribute to it. We fall into this mentality when we start to think that we can deal with sin in our life under our own strength or in our own strength. How many of you, you have a particular sin you struggle with? You have tons of them you struggle with. Well, you have tons of them in your life, but you have one or two that you really struggle with. How many of you, you're like, I, I am gonna, I'm going to nail this thing. I'm going to conquer it. And then you never conquer it. I'm going to defeat this sin. I'm going to be twice as disciplined, twice as committed. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible. I am going to conquer this thing, but you never actually make progress. Maybe it's because having begun by the Spirit, you're trying to be perfected in the flesh. Or let's talk about spiritual growth. You know, when I was a younger Christian I wanted to be saved, and I wanted to go to heaven when I died, and I wanted to be a better person to an extent. But the older I get, the more appealing <laughs> and the more like what I long for day in and day out is to grow in holiness, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, to grow in more and more into the image of Christ. And <laughs> I think that's what the Spirit does in us, you know, obviously. But what happens is a lot of times it's like, all right, I'm going to grow and I'm going to do this, but instead of saying I'm going to do it in the spirit, in my mind, it's, I, I revert to the flesh. Like, I'm going to be the best dad today. And we have five kids, and, you know, I'll make it like 20 minutes because time slows to a crawl when you're with kids. Everyone tells me, like, it goes by so fast, which is probably true. But in my house, like, I'll get up in the morning. We'll make French toast, we'll watch a movie, we'll play games, we'll run around outside, we'll go run some errands. I look at the clock and it's 8 a.m. And I'm like, what in the world? What am I supposed to do the rest of the day? And so I make this commitment, I'm going to be the best dad ever. And I make it like 20 or 30 minutes, and then what happens? I get incredibly discouraged because I failed. I failed when I was trying. Like, nothing's worse than that. It's one thing to fail when you weren't really thinking. It's another thing when you're like, I am going to be awesome today. And then you're not awesome. Like, life with God, it's fueled, begins by the Spirit, and it's fueled by the Spirit. And when you view your battle with sin or your growth in holiness as ultimately a matter of discipline or effort, I am telling you, you've fallen under the spell. <laughs> You're trying to fight the flesh with the flesh. Don't hear me wrong. 
God calls us to wrestle. He calls us to fight. He calls us to struggle against sin, not struggle with sin. Struggling with sin is like, I don't want this, but you're still holding on to it. Struggling against, fight against, push against. Absolutely. Effort is not bad. But if you try to deal with sin or grow in holiness through your own discipline and willpower, you're missing it. And some of you, you're stuck in cycles of sin and you're really frustrated and discouraged. Like, I am going to conquer this sin. And you've been saying that for years. And you've got the accountability, you've tried the discipline, you've tried to put forth all the effort and it hasn't worked, but you still think that somehow this week is going to be different. Like it's not. Sin is too powerful. You, you can't just white knuckle your way through most sins. Sometimes you can. Like sometimes, C.S. Lewis says, sometimes the devil will let you get a victory over one sin as long as it breeds a, a bigger and deadlier sin. So you might conquer this little sin, but then once you conquer it, then you feel very proud of yourself. And you look at everyone who sins like that still, and you're like, man, what a miserable person they are. Like they obviously don't love God. Sometimes you get that. Usually you don't. And some of you, you've been stuck, but you've been trying to fight flesh with flesh. This is why we get stuck and we struggle to get out. And so how do we get out? And I'll tell you, the truth I'm about to share with you has the power to change your life. And that's a big statement, and I don't make statements like that usually. The truth I'm about to share with you has the power to absolutely change your life, change your battle with sin, battle against sin, and your growth in holiness. The way you grow in righteousness is not by trying to grow in righteousness. The way you grow in righteousness is by fixing your eyes on Jesus and keeping in step with his spirit. Now you might say, what's the difference? Well, one is you're fixing your eye on your sin and your brokenness and all of this, and you're, you're tinkering with it. I'm going to change this, this, and this. The other, you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. You're seeking to ground yourself in his love and his work. And then you're paying attention to the Spirit. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me. It means to remain, dwell, stick with me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then you know what he says? He says it again. Because he knows how hard of hearing we are. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See what Paul's saying, what Jesus is saying is the way you enter into a relationship with God is the way you grow in your relationship with God. You enter your relationship with God by grace, through faith, and the finished work of Jesus. You grow in your relationship with God by grace, through faith, and the finished work of Jesus. The way you really change is by going ever deeper into the grace of God and the love of God. That's where real change occurs. 
So many of you, you are trying to conquer sin in your life that you don't actually hate. And I've learned from personal experience, you will never be freed from a sin until you hate the sin. Like you might hate some of the aspects of the sin, the way it makes you feel after, or the, the consequences in your relationships, like if you gossip all the time. You might not like that sometimes it gets you into sticky situations. But you don't actually hate the sin. If you hated the sin, you would, you'd understand why Jesus is like, cut off your, your hand or gouge out your eye. Do whatever it takes. But you don't hate the sin. Now, typically what would happen is the preacher would get up, someone like me behind a pulpit like this, we'd get up with a Bible in hand and saying, you need to hate your sin. Like, why don't you hate it more? Don't you see what it's doing to you and doing to other people? And that, that might work for a week. But like the way we hate sin is not be being told to hate sin. The way we learn to hate sin is as we learn to love God and even more as we learn how God has loved us. When God becomes the perfect heavenly father and we learn to trust him, then we learn to see sin for what it is a cancer in our world and a cancer in our souls. And that's why we say, okay, I'll do whatever it takes to cut this out of my life. I hate it. I want it to be gone. I don't like what this is doing to me. Temptations start to lose their power when this happens because your, your affections have changed, your desires have changed. I'll give you an example. I haven't eaten much sugar in the last six months. Uh, A couple of times, but for the most part, I've been pretty good. And your taste buds start to change if you don't eat sugar. Uh, I was making a peanut butter and jelly for my kids the other day, and some peanut butter got in my hand, and I licked my finger. And it was kind of gross because I felt like I was just licking sugar that was, like, flavored with a peanut flavor. Like, you're like, this is gross, but I used to eat it all the time, and I'm not judging you if you do eat it. There's tons of freedom in what we eat as Christians, but, but I will say you're, my taste buds have changed. My kids have had birthdays, and there's birthday cake, and it's like, are you so tempted to eat the cake? And it's like, not really. Like, I don't like sugar. Now, that doesn't mean that if I, like, started in on it, I couldn't finish a piece and enjoy it in the meantime. What it does mean is, like, my, my taste buds have changed. My desires have changed. And fighting sin, it's not just like, I'm going to say no. You've you got to have a better goal. You've got to have a better motivation, which is the love of God. Let me just say, if you're exhausted in your walk with God, which I know a lot of you are, if you're exhausted in your walk with God, maybe you're trying to finish in your own strength what began by grace. If joy is absent in your life, If joy is absent in the church, which it often is, which is crazy because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. <laughs> like It's like right there. And yet when I look at Christians, when I look at churches, I wouldn't use joy as a way to describe us. Like we're not a people necessarily marked by laughter all the time and freedom. If joy is lacking in your life, Chances are you're trying to finish what began by grace. 
in your own ability. Now hear me, I, I'm warning you, but because legalism goes so deep, because religion goes so deep, some of you are hearing this and you're like, I am never going to do that again. Here's my to-do list to prevent this from ever happening again. What you need to do is rest in the fact that God saved you by his grace and he's promised to perfect you by his grace. And when you fall into sin and you feel horrible and immediately want to do something to prevent it from happening again, the first thing you need to do, you know, is not, not take some action. If you respond to your sin like, all right, here's what's going to change, you're still under the spell. What you need to do when you sin is break the spell then and there. What you need to do is you need to press into the gospel and say this sin is ugly, it's horrendous, and yet Jesus paid for it on the cross. It doesn't define me, and it doesn't change how God views me. That's how you break the spell. And then after that, I'm all for you developing strategies and other things, but that's where you start. And that's why we sing every week. I don't know if you've noticed, the songs we sing, they all say kind of the same thing, that God is great and that he loves us and that Jesus has accomplished our salvation for us. I don't even know. I preach the same thing. I have like three or four sermons. I just rearrange the words. I don't ever preach anything new because if I did, you should fire me. Like we don't need new information. We need the old truths to become fresh and real again and again to our hearts. Remember how your life began, life with God began. Remember how we actually grow in the Christian life. And then the third and last thing. Paul wants the Galatians, he wants us to remember what makes the church both beautiful and powerful. Paul writes in verse 4, he said, did you suffer? That word could also be translated experience. Did you suffer and experience so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you Galatians, you have forgotten what made your church so beautiful and so powerful. You forgot what made you special. What made your church beautiful and powerful was not that everyone was killing it and obeying the laws. What made your church beautiful and powerful was not that, you know, you had a 90% success rate on people in their Bible reading plans. It, it wasn't that you got 80% of the men circumcised, and you could brag about that. And it... It wasn't like you had a sign when you came in. We've gone 67 days without any scandalous sin in our midst. That's not what made you special. It wasn't that you were really moral people. What made your church special is that God was there. And his spirit was moving in powerful ways in your midst. That made you beautiful and it made you powerful. So often, I think we settle for such a smaller vision of what the church can be. I think most people, I've learned this from feedback and from talking with other pastors and just being attentive. I think most people, what they want 
at least most people in the, the suburbs, what they want is a church that's orderly and clean. And what I mean by that is we want it to be orderly, which isn't all bad, but, but we want everything to be abundantly clear. We want all the processes to be clear. We want perfect communication. We want, we want all the pathways to not have a single obstacle. We want communication to come six months in advance via, you know, digitally, uh, on paper, and then verbally from the stage. We want the systems and everything to run smoothly. We don't want any sand in any of the gears. And, and like, I'm with you. I don't want that either. But that's something that it seems like people really want from church. And then the other thing is we want church to be a place that's really neat. Like, we don't like it when church gets messy. The number of people who can quote to me dozens, if not hundreds, of Bible verses, but who leave the church the minute they have conflict with someone else, it just reveals, like, we like to play the religion game, but Jesus is really clear. Like, if you have conflict, you got to go resolve it. You got to go do that. And it's like, no, we don't like that. That's messy. Give us something that is neat, clean, and orderly. And what ends up happening is you end up churches end up with churches that are cold, rigid, sterile. No one wants to be a part of those churches, right? What is it that makes the church beautiful and powerful? It's that the Spirit's there. But when the Spirit's there, sometimes things get a little messy. Now, the Spirit will bring order eventually, but it, He takes the long way. Think of what the work of the Spirit is. What, what does He do in our lives? What does He do in us individually? He brings conviction of sin, like real deep conviction of sin. And so if you're a church where the Spirit's actually moving, you are going to have people saying, I was this way, I am this way, I need to be set free. If the Spirit's at work, you're not going to have people who only talk about their sin in the past tense, where I used to struggle with all those things, but I don't struggle anymore the Spirit's moving, there is going to be deep conviction today. And that's messy when people start confessing real sin. Makes us uncomfortable. We call that oversharing. No, no, no. Confess that there's appropriate sins to confess and then inappropriate. Those are all inappropriate. The Spirit brings guidance and direction. The Spirit sustains us in seasons of suffering. Sometimes the Spirit... In his guidance, he leads us into suffering because God in his wisdom knows that's what we need to grow us. And so if he's at work in our lives, it's going to be a bit messy. But what does the Spirit do in the church at large? Well, he gives us gifts, and he doesn't give us all the same gifts. He gives us very different gifts that are complementary, but you know, very, very different. And that's why in the church you have some people who are like, Caring for the poor is the most important issue ever in the history of the world. And I love that. But then you have other people. No, it's about teaching and doctrine. This is the most important issue in the world. And so you have people with these very deep passions. And we, we never consider, oh, that's because the Spirit's actually gifted people. And we need one another. And like we are a body with many different parts. And so if the Spirit's at work in the church, it's going to be messy because you're going to have a bunch of different people saying, this is the most important thing because it's the most important thing to them because God has wired them that way. And that's a beautiful thing, but it's messy. The Spirit, what else does he do in our midst? He brings miracles, miracles of healing. 
which we've seen. We don't see it as much as I, I wish we'd see, but we've seen. We see miracles of provision where God shows up in powerful ways and meets great needs. We see miracles of conversion. But when there's real conversion, when we're seeing people who didn't know God come to faith in God, a lot of times, you know, because the flesh is still there, they just got messy lives. And then by God's grace, maybe they'd actually bring their friends to church and their friends are going to have messy lives too, which means all of a sudden a whole lot of mess is going to show up in the church. But with that mess is life. Last thing the Spirit does, though, is the Spirit brings unity. And Paul says our job is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We don't cultivate or create. It's something he gives. In the midst of all of the ways we're different, in the midst of the mess, we're unified. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't want to do this the rest of my life if God's not here. I don't want to, like, we could do a whole lot of other things on Sundays if we're showing up, but God is not powerfully at work in our midst. And Paul's big point here is that happens not because we decide we're going to try harder. It happens by hearing with faith and then the Spirit moving. It happens as we go deeper and deeper into our knowledge of and love for God and the gospel. I want to close by saying this. Paul, Paul uses really strong language here, and I think he does because he wants to wake them up. I actually don't know if he was as shocked by the Galatians as he, he seems to be in the way he writes this because, because I think the greatest, single greatest struggle in the Christian life, and Paul knew this, the single greatest struggle, it's believing that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. I think that's the hardest call in the Christian life not as a result of works. Martin Luther, he wrote this. He said, when you hear an immature and unripe saint trumpet that he knows very well that we must be saved by the grace of God without our own works and then pretend that is a snap for him, well, then have no doubt that he has no idea of what he is talking about and probably will never find out. For this is not an art that can be completely learned or of which anyone could boast that he is a master. It is an art that will always have us as pupils. So I pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning, this would be us going to school. This would be us being pupils. This would be us being reminded that on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he didn't take a loaf of bread and say, this needs to be your body that you're going to break for me. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood that's poured out for you. And he called us as his people to do this in remembrance of him. This is a way for him to continually remind us we are loved by God, by grace, not by what we do. This is a way to break the spell every week. But you know how powerful the spell is because how many of us grew up in churches where you did this every week and yet you still thought it was about what you did that made you right with God? And I pray we would be different. And so when you come to the table, remember, you come with nothing in your hands. You come with sin in your heart that you want to confess. 
and then you receive the gift. I'm going to pray. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I pray that you would join me in praying. If you're here and you've spent your entire life living under a law, not gospel, I pray that you would pray, seek the Spirit, and say, Lord, awaken me to the freedom I have. I pray that you would lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him and him alone, perfectly complete. Let me pray.